what do you follow? Or whom do you follow? In an age of social media, there is no lack of people that we can follow. And whomever you follow says, it, it says something about you. I don't, know if, I don't know if you know that or not. But if we were to pull up your feed, whether whatever social media feed, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, whatever it is, some of that which we do not name, Whatever is in the history of your feed reveals something about who you are. Whether it be the people or the companies or even the animals that you might follow on social media, it reveals something about you. Now, all of you who are not on social media that are silently, silently judging everyone who is on social media, who do you follow? Is it a journalist or an author or a sports team? A musical artist. Whom do you follow? And what I'm about to say might change the way that you think about me. And I think I'm okay with it. I follow LeBron James. <laughs> Ever since 2002, I have paid very close attention to LeBron James. Him and I graduated high school from the same year. And between the two of us, we have four championships, four MVPs, four N NBA championship MVPs, 17 All-Stars. We together are third in the NBA in all-scoring, eighth in assists, and 13 in steals. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't love everything that LeBron James stands for. I hate the way that he flops. I hate the way that he cries. Him and I disagree on about everything in life. But I follow LeBron James because when I watch him play basketball, I am in awe of what he does. And you might find this interesting. MJ is still the best. <laughs> My first amen of the, ser of the sermon. <laughs> but I say all of this now, whatever you think of, about me now, which might be even worse than you did before. It says something about me that I follow LeBron James. It reveals something about us, about when we say who we follow. And this morning, as we gather under the name of Christ, our Lord and King, if we say we are followers of Christ, it should say something about us. It should reveal something about us whether it be the way that we love other people. May it be the way that we live, the way that we celebrate, the way that we weep and we mourn, the way that we work, even the way we worship. If we are followers of Jesus, it reveals something about who we are. And what I want us to see this morning in Ezra 8 is that God has asked the Israelites to leave something behind and follow Ezra back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land, to the place that had been laid 
in destitution for over 70 years. And at this point in Ezra 8, close to 140 years. Israel has to leave where they're flourishing. And they are called back to follow after Ezra to the place where God is going to create them into the people he had called them to be. And what I want you to hear this morning is that God has asked you to follow a man on a journey. And he has called for you to leave something behind. And he's asking you to make a tough decision. Because it's going to be really hard. Because it might be something that you love very deeply. It might be something that you have previously said, oh, I'll never give that up. But he's going to ask you to give up something and it's going to hurt. Because when he calls us, he demands our everything. And we must ask ourselves, are we willing to follow by faith? Because if we look at our own hearts and our own wills and our own desires, if it's left up to us, we will continue to build these different areas in our lives where we keep something safe. And that something safe usually isn't where goodness and mercy flows. If we look at our hearts, that's usually where we hide our sin. And that's what God demands we give up to follow Jesus by faith. What I want us to see this morning is that Ezra, a man of God, does four things, and the people must respond by faith. Ezra gathers a congregation. Ezra, Ezra gives a proclamation. Ezra generates a separation, and Ezra prepares for culmination. Ezra gathers a congregation. If you were going on a road trip, and you had to go inside and you had to grab one thing, what would that one thing be? Most of you, it's probably your phones, plus something else. This weekend, our family took an overnight trip to Little Rock, and 30 minutes after we were already supposed to leave, the boys are complaining in the car. Love you, boys. Um, <laughs> and I, and they say, oh, I, I want to take a toy. And so I think... I'm a really smart dad. Okay, go inside and grab two toys, one for each hand, right? You go in and you grab two toys and, and you come back. What I didn't estimate is that to grab just two means you have to eliminate a lot of other toys to bring. And it actually took a very long time. It wasn't as quick as I thought it would be. But what would you choose? If you had to go on a road trip, what would you choose? What we see at the beginning of this chapter is this second group of Israelites that are leaving Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. For some reason, they didn't go back with the first group. And, and we're not told why. We're not told why they didn't leave. But what the text does tell us is that Artaxerxes makes a decree and he says, if they choose to go, they may go freely back to Jerusalem. They are 
freely choosing to leave their lives behind. And at this point in Babylon, as I said, they've been outside of Jerusalem for 140 years. These people that are leaving know nothing other than Babylon. The first group left in 538 B.C. It's now 458 B.C. And they're asked to follow Ezra. And Ezra tells us that there are some people that are going. We are told the sons of Phinehas and Ithmar and David. And why does he name these first? Well, if you know your Bible history, you know Phinehas and Ithmar are in the priestly line of Aaron. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, and Ithmar was a son of Aaron. So these are his descendants. And Hattush, Hattush is a great-grandson in the line of David. So what Ezra is saying is, I gathered leading men who we need in the promised land. He gathers what he needs, what God has designed for his people to flourish, for his, God, for his people to be able to be a kingdom of priests. Kingdom, David. Priests, Aaron. Ezra is gathering what the people need to flourish as the people of God, as God has designed for them. And I've got a question. How many of you did what I asked you to do back when Blake begrudgingly read Ezra chapter 2? What were you supposed to do after every single time we read a name of a family? Of the sons of Shekinah, who was the sons of Paros, Zechariah, with whom were gathered, who were registered 150 men. What were you supposed to say? To them, God was faithful. Because remember, all of these people had been kicked out of Israel for their faithful, faithlessness, and God is calling them back because God is faithful. None of them deserve to go back to the promised land, but he drew them back out of his grace and his mercy. But these weren't the only ones that Ezra gathered before returning to Jerusalem. There were some missing, as we see um, in Chapter 8, verse 15. When they gathered encamped by the river for three days, I viewed the people and the priests and found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Levites were helpers. They helped priests fulfill their duties in temple worship. They kept watch over the temple and all of the workers inside of it. And if you remember, because you know, you've read Second Chronicles recently, if you remember, it's because the, one of the reasons they were kicked out of the land is because the Levites were no longer serving the purpose of why they had been set apart. You can find that in 2 Chronicles 24, but don't go there right now. The reason for the lack of Levites is unknown. Some speculate that because of the de deterioration of the priestly line in Israel before the exile, Levites started functioning as priests. 
And therefore, Levites didn't want to go back to a new Israel, reconstituted on the word of God, the law of God, as we saw in Ezra chapter 7. They no longer wanted to do what they were called to do. Because this is what we tend to do, right? We tend to prioritize importance. I was doing a priest, the priest work. I don't want to do just the work of a Levite. The work of a Levite, in some way, I'm not saying it's a, it's a one-to-one correlation, the work of a Levite in today in the New Testament church is really what we see almost as an office of deacon. Deacon serve. And there are jokes in the church about deacons that graduate to the office of elder. But let me tell you, there is no such thing as a graduation in gifts. Elders have gifts. Deacons have gifts. And both, as we see here, both are are needed for the people of God to flourish. Ezra needs Levites. If you go to Nehemiah 8, you'll see why he needs Levites. They teach the word. And the Levites do really hard work. But then we see that the hand of the good God, of their good God, was on the people. Ezra sent men with a word. He gave them what to say. We see this in verse 17. Tell them what to say to Idu and his brothers at, and the temple servants at the place, Kispiah, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And we see that God is at work in the hearts of the Levites without it explicitly telling us this. Right? We, we saw that in Ezra chapter 1. We saw that the Lord was stirring up the hearts of the heads of the households for them to leave. But here, all we read is that they came. They didn't at first. Ezra sent men with words, and they responded. Because the good hand of God was on his people. In a more full way, Jesus is asking you to follow. He has given his words to his people so that his people might hear his word and come. And it's all because of God's good hand that is upon us. Whether you're a deacon, whether you're male or female, young or wise, single or married, whether you have your dream job or you're just getting by, Jesus has called you to follow him by faith. And as we see with these Levites, it means you're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to leave something you really don't want to leave. And we're not told that the Levites don't leave because of sin. But we all know something that is so hard to leave is our sin, our idols, 
something we have created in our hearts that we love dearly. And we are called to leave it and follow Jesus by faith. Have you responded to this calling? Have you left that one thing that you're thinking of right now? Are you willing to leave that behind? As a pastor, as a teaching elder in this church, along with John, and there are ruling elders, we are not more significant. We are weak in our faith, I promise. Yet we will tell you the same message that Ezra is telling his people. Come along with our journey. Because the only way we're going to get there is by the good hand of our God upon us. You all are significant to this body. We need you to function as a body. Because you are part of the body of Christ. You are an integral part of what we're doing here. The only requirement is to follow Jesus by faith. Ezra gathers a congregation, and then we see that Ezra gives a proclamation. We see in verse 21, Ezra tells the people to fast. He proclaims a fast. And it tells us why. Ezra had told Artaxerxes that he did not need a royal escort back to Jerusalem, as we see in verse 22. Ezra says, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is, good, is, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And we've done this before, right? We've said something out of confidence, and then we're saying, mm, maybe I shouldn't have said that. That's what Ezra's doing. And in the book of Nehemiah, you can, you can read that. Nehemiah asked for an escort. So this isn't a poor judgment call on Ezra. But it is a place in the book of Ezra where Ezra gets to exemplify faithfulness, that he truly believes that the hand of God is upon him. This proclamation to fast is a tune-in so that people might seek God humbly. And so they fasted. In an article posted on Ligonier Ministries, Rebecca Van Duerdward, Van Duerdward rightly states, In a health-conscious world, fasting is huge. There are books, studies, TED Talks, all advocating for fasting. Yet what we notice is that intermittent fasting, that's a health fad, a health craze right now, is very similar to biblical fasting in the means. But the goal is very different. But what Rebecca also states is that we will probably find more people at our gyms that know more about fasting than the people within our congregations. And I must admit, in the last two to three years, I've studied more about intermittent fasting than I have about biblical fasting. 
throughout scriptures, fasting is almost exclusively tied to prayer and to worship. When we fast, we are reminding ourselves that we are weak and dependent people. We are creatures who depend on a God who supplies for our every need. And when we fast, it is a physical reminder. It's an alarm clock in our stomachs that says, you need to pray. In fasting, we deny ourselves something we need, knowing that it will soon be fulfilled, but not yet. Fasting is not pleasant. It's a discipline, something that scripture associates with hardship, intense prayer, repentance, and grief. Fasting humbles us. It makes us show self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we see in Ezra 8, Ezra 8 isn't giving us something prescriptive. He's not saying every time you travel, you should fast. He's giving us something that's descriptive. He's telling the people, we must fast. For every time we have hunger, pains, we need to be reminded what? As we see for the second time in this passage, that the hand of our God is on us. Ezra reminds the people of God of the great truth and the great grace of God. When we fast, we are called to remind ourselves of whom we rely upon. But this isn't something that describes God's congregation. It is something that God's congregation already does because it is who they are. They are people built and founded upon God's divine grace for them. Fasting points us to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus saying, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Fasting reminds us we need Jesus. Fasting also reminds us That soon, soon, there will be no more fasting. We fast now because we know that God's hand is upon us. But we fast now because when Jesus returns, we will never fast again. For he is the bread of life. And when he will come back, we will feast. How regularly do you fast? I would recommend fasting. I would also recommend find someone to fast with you. Whether it's 12 hours, whether it's 24 hours, whether you want to do it as a family, whether you ask your spouse, whether you ask a friend, fasting connects our physicalness with our spirit. And it forces us to run to Jesus. Whether you're seeking wisdom or guidance, protection 
or you're merely needing a day to come to the feet of Jesus. Fasting points us to the bread of life. Ezra gathers a congregation, Ezra gives a proclamation, and Ezra generates a separation. From the very beginning of Scripture, we see that God is a God of separation. Genesis 1-4, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Later in Leviticus, as we've seen, God separates Levites and priests. But in Leviticus 20, he also says, But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you and possess it. A land flowing of milk and honey, and I, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples of the earth. And we see here, Ezra separates the people of God as they travel back to Israel. To Israel, He says, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah and Hashabiah. And I don't know if you recognize those names, but those are the same names used in verses 18 and 19. They're Levites. So I actually don't like the heading here, if you have an ESV Bible, priests to guard the offerings, because these are both priests and Levites. And these priests and Levites are set apart for a very special task. And before you say, oh, I want the job of a priest and a Levite, you must understand that they are asked to carry 48,000 pounds of silver. 15,000 pounds of silver vessels and 7,000 pounds of gold. And they must protect it. And they must do hard work for the service of God. And this isn't just a spiritual thing. It's a very physical thing. Our deacons come forward and physically gather the tithes and offerings. I haven't seen any of them lug 18,000 pounds of silver yet into the office. It's a very physical thing, but there are spiritual things tied to it because all of that is traveling for an offering to the Lord. We don't know who all traveled back. We're only giving a few names out of what we think is about 5,000 people that traveled from Babylon back to Jerusalem in this second exodus. But Ezra entrusts these priests and Levites with a very physical task, with a very spiritual meaning. And as we see for the third time in verse 31, the hand of our God was on us. This man of God, leading priests and Levites and the people out of exile back into the promised land, and three times in this chapter, we saw it three times in last chapter, three times in this chapter, it's completely and solely by God's grace because his hand was upon them. At our baptisms, we are separated from the world for the work of God. We all take vows to support one another for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. And we are called to a mission to travel together. And sometimes it involves carrying heavy things. Ask our deacons. They carry heavy things all the time. They're called dividers. 
but we're also called to carry each other along because many of us stumble and trip. Many of us have a hard time following the man that we have focused our eyes on, and we need each other. Because here's the the great thing about chapter 8, is they get there. They get to Jerusalem. They go to the temple. They weigh everything. They make a sacrifice. But guess, guess what? Their work is not yet done. Ezra gathers a congregation. Ezra gives a proclamation. Ezra generates a separation, and Ezra prepares for culmination. Ezra and the people have arrived. And they do as the people did before them. They go before the Lord and they make a sacrifice, as we see in verse 35. They make a burnt offering to the Lord. Ezra, by the grace of God, led a people and they came back to Jerusalem. Because the good hand of their God was upon them. God provided a leader. God provided the people. God provided the sacrifices, the gold, and the silver. God has provided everything that they might need. And I know this might shock you. Maybe, I hope it doesn't. You are not Ezra. I am not Ezra. John is not Ezra. And guess what? LeBron James is not Ezra. Ezra is a type of Christ, the one who has come that we are to follow by faith. What we see in this passage is a microcosm of what Christ has done with the church. Ezra gathered a people scattered all over Babylonia. But this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 43 and Jeremiah 32, that he's gathering the remnant to take them back to Jerusalem. But what Jesus has done on the cross is he's gathered Jews and Gentiles from every corner of the world and gathered to himself and said, you are my people. Follow me by faith. Christ is gathering his church. Ezra gave a proclamation to fast. Yet Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Ezra separated people. But Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, when I'm lifted from the earth, I will draw to myself, lift high the cross. I will draw to myself all men. And Ezra prepares for a culmination, ending in the sacrifice. And we see him sacrifice 12, 12 bulls, 96 rams, 77 lambs as a sin offering. But Jesus offered himself as a high priest. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, in this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. 
Ezra 8 is a microcosm of what we have in Christ. It's the ingathering. And I'll ask you again, who do you follow? Because you follow somebody. And it will reveal everything about you. Jesus has gathered his congregation. Jesus has made a proclamation. Jesus generates separation. And Jesus prepares us for a culmination and the consummation of all things. And at our homecoming, guess what? When we arrive in the new heavens and the new earth, it won't be because of our genealogies. It won't be because we've fasted or prayed really well. It won't be because anything that we have done, it will all be because of Jesus. He is our pleasant aroma. And God looks at us and says, in you, I am well pleased. And when Jesus returns, we will feast and our faith will be turned into sight. Let's pray.